we have been on a journey through the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, we are going to conclude that journey uh, from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. And the title of our message today is The Doxology That Destroys Doubt. Say that with me. The Doxology That Destroys Doubt. One more time. The Doxology That Destroys Doubt. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can call you Father. And thank you so much that we are adopted into your family because of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the beloved Son, who put on flesh, walked this earth, and lived the life we could never live and die the death for us that we could never die. And thank you that he did not stay dead, but that by your power and glory, oh God, you raised your son, that he might be the undisputed sovereign king of your eternal kingdom. And now, Lord, would you please help me get out of the way so that what you once said, get said, no more, no less, to the glory of our King Jesus. And the church said, Amen. So it was on a cold night in World War II at a prison camp. And there were hundreds of American prisoners of war who had been beaten and marched before their camp commander and harangued for an hour. And he ordered them back to their barracks and told them to be quiet for the night. But someone in that barracks wasn't. Someone in that barracks began to pray the Lord's Prayer. And as that prayer began, others began to join in. And fellow prisoners started praying as well. And then other prisoners in the next barrack overheard this and joined in. And one by one, each set of barracks joined in until the prayer thundered with, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And then they concluded with a deafening, explosive cry of hope, Amen! And suddenly the camp fell silent. Silent but not sullen, because through prayer, these prisoners saw victory. Jesus' prayer transported those POWs to freedom, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. That's the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Now look in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 6. You won't see that doxology in the text itself. 
most of our Bibles have this doxology in the footnote of Matthew's gospel. And likely yours does too. Luke omits it altogether. And yet we say it, don't we? Why is that? Well, glance down in the footnote and you will read likely these words. Some manuscripts add. What does that mean? Well, it means that we do not possess the original gospel according to Matthew. We wouldn't know if we did. We are dependent, therefore, on copies. Copies called manuscripts. And some copies have this doxology, and other copies do not. And in fact, the earlier copies do not. And that's why it's in the footnote. That said, it would have been almost unthinkable for a Hebrew to let Satan have the last word in a prayer to God. That the Hebrews almost always concluded their prayers with a doxology. And so the most common doxology in the Hebrew culture was simply this. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Matthew may not have included this doxology because it was just assumed. That's how they ended prayer anyway. And this doxology is saturated in Scripture language. So I'm thinking of 1 Chronicles 29, 11, where David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Concerning God, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. I'm thinking of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, where Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. I'm thinking of Jude 25, to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And I'm not done. Revelation 4.11 says, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Oh, and there's one more. Revelation 5.13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Now, can you see why those POWs felt so free? The doxology brings us full circle to the start of the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, we start with heaven. 
And when you start with heaven and our heavenly Father, then that just situates whatever you're facing and puts it in its proper context. We start with heaven, we proceed to earth, and then we return to heaven. It sounds a lot like the incarnation, does it not? And this doxology is meant to bolster our spirits against prayer's most devastating enemy. Doubt. Doubt. How many of us have been POWs to a commandant called doubt? Doubt tyrannizes. Doubt harangues. Doubt weakens. Doubt makes us fragile. Doubt leaves us conflicted and ambivalent and divided. And it, it doesn't it seem that doubt is just relentless. It just won't let up. We're in a space now that encourages prayer, wants prayer, and celebrates prayer, and has us focused on the Lord. But most of us live and work in secular spaces. And these spaces do not consider God in the moment-by-moment -moment activities of life. Most of us don't work, though some of us do. And it's wonderful for those of us who do. But most of us don't work in spaces where you can start your meetings or your classes in prayer. Most of us don't work where you can ask your boss to pray for you. Most of us don't work in spaces where important decisions which affect the welfare of people and families and children and marriages and singles and, are, and seniors are bathed in prayer. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if our leaders locally, statewide, and nationally could publicly fall on their knees and plead with wisdom, Oh God, help us! Wouldn't it be wonderful if in our city hall or state house, our leaders could say, Wait, wait, before we decide, let's seek wisdom from the Lord. Would that not be wonderful? To hear vulnerability from our leaders, Oh Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. Give us wisdom. Oh if only. But a visible lack of spiritual leadership has devastating effects on those who follow. And I'm just not talking about the state house. I'm talking about your house and my house. Shallow spiritual leadership creates deep, heavy, doubting hearts. And because our culture has disinvited the most important person in the decision-making process, it is easy to become discouraged to the point of doubting God's presence. Has He left us? Are we irredeemable? Is this it? Are we on our own? And fear begins to dominate and doubt begins to weaken and half-hearted hope plagues us. And then on top of that, 
We read in James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, For the doubter is like a surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So now, in addition to doubting, there's guilt about our doubting. And it makes us wonder, does it not? Are, are any of my prayers reaching heaven? Are my prayers pointless? Is, is the Lord's prayer useless religious liturgy repeated for no real purpose? Or is this how faith fights? Is the doxology how we refuse to settle for weak, puny prayers Watery, hope, and wafer-thin wafer faith. No, no. No, this doxology is no token ending to prayer. The doxology of the Lord's Prayer is a portal to paradise. It's like the wardrobe in Narnia. Remember C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? A, a passageway to another world. Listen, hear me. The doxology assures us that our prayers do not rest on our efforts, but they rely on God's faithfulness. And you know why? The doxology begins with a small but mighty word. What's that word? For. Say that with me. For. For. Three letters. In both the English and the Greek, for is an impenetrable wall against the flaming missiles of Satan. For is the decisive, nevertheless, to Satan's darkness. Deliver us from evil, we pray. Why is that possible? For. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Listen, to pray the doxology is to pray with David in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? To pray the doxology is to pray with Joseph in Genesis, whose brothers sold him to slavery, but whose God raised him to the pinnacle of Egyptian power, Joseph said to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the saving of many lives. To pray the doxology is to pray with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of olives fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flocks be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. To pray the doxology is to say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were about to be hurled into the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it 
be so, the God we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and deliver us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not bow down before your gods or worship the golden image that you have erected. If you will help me, I won't have to work so hard, church. Amen? To, to, to pray the doxology is to say that doubt does not have the last word. God does. This is no sentimental churchy bow neatly tied on a package. This is immovable granite upon which to build your lives so that those lives can withstand the inevitable storms that will strike. God, does, God never asks us to rely on our conscience or strength or experiences. Rather, he wants us resting in his immortality. And if you feel doubt, then you take your doubt and you drive it deep into the granite of God's doxological, indestructible kingdom, power, and glory. Here's the big idea. Doxology is the profession of hope in the presence of doubt. There it is. Doxology, the profession of hope in the presence of doubt. Now, in the time that remains, let's just talk about those three words. Kingdom, power, and glory. For thine is the kingdom. You see that in the prayer. Twice it occurs. That's important. Thy kingdom come at the start meets thine is the kingdom at the close. And Jesus informs us that ultimate reality, the reality that transcends all principalities and powers, is rested in Him and Him alone. Our world may be conflicted and confused about what truth is, who's in charge, and what the future holds, but Jesus is not confused. Matthew 28, 19, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It was true then, it's true now, and it's going to be true on November the 3rd, church family. Whereas Americans say that government is of the people, by the people, and for the people, the kingdom of God consists of loyal subjects who are of the king, by the king, and for the king. Tony Evans defines God's kingdom as the visible demonstration of God's comprehensive rule over every area of life. He writes, the reason why so many believers are struggling is that we want God to bless our agenda instead of fulfilling His agenda. We want God to okay our plans instead of setting ourselves to the task of fulfilling His plans. But it does not work that way. God has only one plan, His kingdom agenda. The Greek word in the New Testament for kingdom is the word basileia. Basileia. So we would think of the word basilica, all right? Basilia, which means rule or authority. So when we talk about a kingdom, we have to include the idea that a kingdom has a king or a ruler. Now, if there's a ruler 
there must be rulees or kingdom subjects. And in addition, a kingdom includes a realm. That is the domain over which the king rules. And in God's kingdom, we need to think broader than just latitude and longitude. We need to think about the domain of your heart. And finally, a kingdom needs regulations, guidelines that govern the relationship between the ruler and the subject. These are necessary so that the subjects will know whether they are doing what the ruler wants done. So God's kingdom includes all of these elements. He's the absolute ruler of his realm, which encompasses all of creation. His authority is final. And listen, everything God rules, he runs. Even when it doesn't look like he's running it. Even when life looks out of control, God is running its out-of-controlness. You need only consider the life of Joseph, who I mentioned earlier, where in the pit of his despair, God was still sovereign over the pit. And when we think about the crucifixion of our Lord, you talk about chaos and weakness and out-of-controlness, well, we know and believe, do we not, that God was sovereign over that. So he's not worried about the future of his kingdom. A virus can't wreck it. An army can't defeat it. A recession can't stall it. And an election can't unseat it. For thine is the kingdom. Kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. And thine is the power. And God's power is what guarantees answered prayer. We ask. Because he is able. And we, de- listen, we depend on God's power for each verse of the Lord's Prayer. So we pray for the power of his hallowed name. We pray for the power of his sovereign will. We pray for the power of his coming kingdom. We pray for the power of provision, daily bread. We pray for the power of grace to give and receive forgiveness. We pray for the power of deliverance from the devil. Every line in the prayer concerns his power. Big things, small things, spiritual things, inward things, outward things, And what gives us confidence to make our requests? Not our power, for thine is the power. Ephesians 3.20 says that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly and immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. If you can imagine it, you haven't even come close to God's ability To do it. Your imagination will never exceed God's ability. Hallelujah. Oh, and there's more. The the Roman Empire knew something about power. It's called the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. 200 years of forced peace through the threat of military terror. Weapons 
are powerful, destructive forces capable of quashing conflict. Political, economic, and technological power can apply pressure from the outside to force compliant, but, but the doxology preaches the heart-changing power of God. A power that put on flesh. A power that stoops. A power that serves. A power that gives. A power that forgives. And some of us wonder if the power of Christ stands a chance against a world of graceless power. And we look at martyrs such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr., we hear stories of global persecution in Pakistan, Nepal, Iran, Morocco. And we walk away saying, but they died. Why does God seem powerless? And we start to doubt. And we no longer speak of kingdom power. And here's why. Hear me. It's because we have forgotten, church family, hear me. Good Friday always comes before Resurrection Sunday. The powerlessness of the cross gives birth to ultimate power in the empty tomb because the empty tomb says, you may be able to kill me, but you can't hurt me. And besides, where's the Roman Empire now? In a museum! Where is the kingdom of God now? Well, look around you. Look around at the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are filled with Christ's spirit. His kingdom knows no end. Hebrews 7.16 speaks of the power of Christ as the power of an indestructible life. And we suffer daily. We suffer daily from the destructible powers of destructible lives. But the gospel claims that these powers have no lasting validity. Worldly powers wilt. Despite all appearances, they have no future. They will self-destruct. The gospel, though, speaks of a cross-bearing love that never fails. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, love never fails. And so if there really is a new beginning for our power-addicted world, it will have to come in the power of forgiving and reconciling love. A love with grit. A love that calls for justice and mercy and humility. A love that demands love for our enemies. A love that challenges wickedness when we see it. Individually and corporately. Might without right is merciless power. But right without love is merciless legalism. For thine is the kingdom... And thine is the power, and thine is the glory. Glory 
Doxa. Doxa. Doxology. Word of glory. Glory in the Bible means density or thickness. And God's glory and man's glory are two different types of thickness. Man's wafer, thin thickness consists of wealth, riches, abundance, armies, accolades, achievements, and power, which are here today and gone just like that. Just like that. God's glory, God's thick glory is Jesus Christ. We have seen God's glory, the Apostle John said. God's glory was born in Bethlehem. God's glory washed feet. God's glory hung out with all of culture's wrong people. God's glory was crucified. God's glory wore a crown of thorns. God's glory died on a cross. And God's glory was raised to life. God's glory left the tomb. And God's glory sent glory spirit to flood us with his presence so that through us his love can reach our world. That's God's glory. God's glory that fills a people so that they might might be people of glory. Hey, look around you. See that blade of grass there? You see it? Listen to me. One blade of grass, one blade of grass in the new heavens and the new earth is by far more glorious than anything you can imagine in this world. That's God's glory. But I want you to know something. The people of glory are not a glorious people. In other words, they don't lead tension-free, triumphalist lives as the world understands it. You know what our glory is? It's going to be tough to hear this, but it's truth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's our glory, Leroy. That's our glory. And listen to me. Hear me now. It's been said that when you are under pressure, 
When you are under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. Church family, the doxology is our training. The doxology is the way we are responding to the challenges right now. Right now. How we are responding is the outcome of the diet we've been consuming before this thing started. And it was only in the providence of God that we had a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do we not need that fruit to both consume ourselves and share in times like this? Amen. A lot of people been eating cotton candy. And what God, what God offers us is protein. Pure fruit from His orchard. And cotton candy's not going to get you through COVID. But the fruit of the Spirit will. Because thine is the kingdom. And the power and the glory. And the weight of glory that far surpasses this light and momentary affliction does not come from ourselves, but from the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. The Spirit who is taking initiative in our lives. The Spirit who through this is transforming you and me and us from one glory to another glory. The glory of God is the Messiah who stoops to wash feet. The glory of God is a life of worship. It's an outlook. It's an attitude. It's a spirit-fueled resolution to our unstoppable God. And because nothing can stop God, we will continue to trust as a community, as a holy temple, as a splendid bride, as a diverse body. Jesus said, this whole conversation according to Luke began because of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. <laughs> they must have seen him praying. Teach us to pray. And Jesus says, well, this is how you pray. And now you know how your Lord prays. So now you pray. You keep praying. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep praying for your marriage, keep praying for your prodigal, keep praying for your spiritual growth, keep praying for your boss, keep praying for your colleague, keep praying for your best friend to come to Christ, keep praying for your enemy to come to Christ, keep praying to desire God more, to pursue God better, to love God deeper, keep praying for your church family. And please keep praying for your pastor. Keep praying. Someone said the line between the greatest faith. There's a good prayer. I like that. Amen. Huh? huh. Someone said the line between the greatest faith and the bitterest unbelief is nothing more than the willingness to kneel. 
And someone else said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. So church family, keep praying. Pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen.